can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome fine people all aboard this perfectly harmless genre hopping pleasure cruise called be real i'm chance solem pfeiffer and i'm noah ballard and uh, if anything should happen to anyone on today's podcast, just know that it was probably Noah in the galley with the harpoon gun. What would be your weapon of choice? Definitely on, the harpoon gun. Yeah, I mean you have to, right? Yeah, leave that shotgun in the in the the little cabinet there. I'm going for the harpoon gun. Perfect. Perfect. But what about the flare? Flare to the throat? For the spoiler? <laughs> See, you're very suspicious. You're thinking about it already. Um, so joining us on today's show, we're very psyched. He is a, a highly talented, uh, longtime illustrator at Mashable, uh, but he's best remembered by me as the art director uh, of the Daily Nebraskan from, I don't know, 08 to 11, maybe? Bob Algreen. How are you, sir? I am fantastic, Chance. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting to be here. I was maybe going to introduce you as like the one-time three-month Friday editor of the arts section, but I figured he's got more important credits than that. Weren't you also uh, the yeah. editor-in-chief summer 2009? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that was a, a storied summer. Um, yeah, what was Jazz in June? And I, I can't remember summer. any of the stories from it, but it was. <laughs> I think there was a uh, Mario Kart tournament uh, that happened at the Bourbon maybe that summer. Mm. Um, so, yeah, not not a... It was kind of a slow news summer. Sure. Well, this is... Yeah, this is the the DN reunion that uh, we know our, our listenership is, is asking for. Um, but uh, we're here to talk about uh, uh, boat murders and the reason, the topical reason Bob is here will become, will become clear. Boat murder movies, to be more precise. Noah, what did we watch yeah. for today? I don't know about you guys, but I watched <laughs> Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile, uh, Dead Calm, and then uh, Murder Mystery, which is that Adam Sandler, Jennifer Aniston Netflix movie. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, our, our our timely hook is is the Death on the Nile adaptation, which landed in theaters um, about a week ago, a little over a week ago. It was the number one movie in America for its that weekend. It will it will certainly not be uh, any longer. Clocking um, in at five hundred thousand dollars domestic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's not true. It did. Uh, it did twelve. It's opening weekend, which I checked against Murder on the Orient Express from 2017, which did twenty seven. <laughs> so just a small drop off. Um, but Bob, in addition to to being our our compatriot, you're here because uh, you're working on a graphic novelization of Murder on the Orient Express. The first time that's ever been done. No. That's right. Uh, the Agatha Christie estate is dipping their toe into. Uh, the world of comics. Uh, they they want to adapt some of these uh, super famous and popular works into a graphic format to uh, appeal to a younger audience, uh, but still a, a murder-interested audience. Um, sure. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm working on an adaptation as we speak uh, of, of the train murder story, not the boat, not murder, the boat story. murder So really, but, is this know, even the right podcast to have you on? No, I can go. I can, okay. I'll go. I'll see myself out. <laughs> it's our mistake, but you should leave. Um, no, you know, one conveyance is as good as another. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I wanted to I wanted to ask you to tell us before we flip the flip the mics on that the graphic novel will be very faithful to the uh, '30s Agatha Christie novel. But I, in terms of visuals, um, what are you what are you imagining? What are you conceiving? What's the is it like an Art Deco style in the '30s? Oh um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I think there's some of that in the in Kenneth Branagh's adaptation as well. But yeah, I, I really wanted to to lean heavily into that Art Deco, the uh, the kind of gilded frames. I mean, it's it's a, it's it's a really opulent setting uh, um, to say the least. Um, and I wanted to reflect that both in yeah in the, the scenery, the imagery, the background, the actual setting of the train because you're you're stuck on this train for basically the entire book. Um, but also, yeah, try to, try to convey some of that in like the, the panel structure and the layouts throughout and make it feel like a very um, kind of gilded art deco package that you get when you open it up. Um, so, you know, that should, that should be pretty fun to, to see when it comes, comes into existence. Mm-hmm. My question is this, Bob, does your does the Poirot that you've come up with does his mustache look like an F sixteen fighter jet? <laughs> no. Do you think? No, go ahead. You're of course referring to the double winging that happens, right? Yeah, I have this little like model of like the F sixteen that you kind of like fold out, like the wings kind of fold, and it really does look like Kenneth Branagh's uh, his mustache, the double the double tier. Yeah, it's like one of those paper airplanes that you would get in like a paper airplane book, like not the one you would just make out of a, a folded piece of loose leaf paper, but like a really fancy right. one, the double wings. It looks like it's going to jump off his face and fly away. There was honestly, there was so much talk that went into the mustache. I think you saw some of the designs, Noah, when I was working on it, but like... Yeah, I'm playing uh, coy. I've actually wrote. seen the designs. It, there was a lot of back and forth about that. I think because the estate is sensitive to the fact that Poirot is this like storied character who's been portrayed many times before. Um, I think iconically by David Suchet, who is my touchstone for the character and for the stories coming into it. But also, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we had a text before about who could bring up David Suchet the fastest. You didn't even know we were playing and you won. (laughs) The word of the day is Suchet. Uh, and I mean, great mustache on David Suchet. Um, but, uh, I, I think they wanted someone who they didn't want just like a carbon copy of David Suchet. I think because that version is so popular and so iconic, they wanted, uh, they wanted a a version of the character that would kind of stand on its own, um, and not necessarily seem informed by any of the previous, uh, portrayals in film or TV, uh, but kind of exist as this iconic the comic book Poirot. In reading the book, he's described as kind of a, a slight, wiry little gentleman. Mm. Um, and I imagined his mustache actually as being white, uh, even though it's like obviously black and a lot of the portrayals are gray. Um, and so, I, yeah, I did a few different versions, some with a little soul patch that also uh, Brenna has adopted. Uh, so, but ultimately, the one we went with is a, a black mustache that kind of wraps all the way around his face, kind of like almost like a... I just tapped my mic uh, as I'm gesturing to create the mustache in this audio medium. Uh, 
Kind of picture like a, a Chester A. Arthur look, almost. Mm, picturing a it. A very, yeah, kind of like a, almost like a 19th century wraparound. Yeah. Uh, mutton chop kind of mustache, almost. Um, now, yeah. not to spoil the, anything about the film we're about to talk about, but when you were laying out the mustache, Bob, were you thinking, how much of this guy's face can I cover because <laughs> of a mustache-shaped injury that he had gotten in World War I? Uh, almost, uh, almost none of that came into consideration, actually. Mm. I, I, I wasn't aware of that as the backstory for the mustache. It didn't come into my design process. Uh, sorry to say. I had imagined that maybe he had like a tattoo that he was trying to cover up on sure. his upper lip. And yeah. then he'd grown the mustache for that reason. By invoking the uh, cold open of Death on the Nile here, my, my trusty co-host has thrust us into the plot. So I better tell you real quick that Be Real is happy as always to be part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which features wonderful shows such as Bingeworthy, Deep Focus, Yellowstoners, The Fourth Wall, and The Discourse. You can find us on iTunes, Anchor FM, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. And as always, we greatly appreciate your support. Noah. You want to synopsize this movie? While on vacation on the Nile, Hercule Poirot <laughs> must investigate the murder of a young heiress. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the newlyweds, Mr. and Mrs. Simon Doyle. You must meet Hercule Poirot. My congratulations, madame. Merci. He's only the greatest detective alive. I suspect you invited me for reasons other than the fun. You had something to hide. We have the Karnak all to ourselves, a chef and enough champagne to fill the Nile. Should have hidden it, shouldn't you? When you have money, no one is ever really your friend. It's too late to change events. It's time. This this movie, uh, as the sequel to the 2017 Murder on the Orient Express, also starring and directed by Kenneth Branagh. This one opens with a black and white flashback to the to trench warfare, um, and uh, real 1917 learn, vibes. Yeah, we learn how the how Han Solo got his blaster of it all. <laughs> it's it's why does Hercule Poirot have a mustache in that? Um, and that double-winged shape, and as Noah let us know, it's a it's a pretty horrifying shrapnel injury. Um, what did you guys make of this as a way to to open this film? I mean, I I think it's uh, I knew it was coming. I had heard before that we were going to get an origin story for the mustache. Um, it would be like mustache, a Star Wars story, right? <laughs> and so, and it was about what I expected. Um, I I think. Less interest, just me personally, I would say like a, less interesting than the mustache maybe is the love interest that they give Poirot and the kind of tragedy uh, that befalls him and that his um, in, his war injury uh, kind of plays a part in um, that then kind of informs his character for the rest of the film. Uh, I thought that was uh, an, an interesting and uh, necessary like addition to the plot. Uh, but that's, that's sorry, that's not facial hair. That's, that's more. No, I agree with Bob that I think that the love interest in him sort of closing himself off to 
those kind of intimate relationships like is an interesting character detail to get early on. Uh, but it almost feels like the movie spites its nose to whatever its mustache <laughs> by focusing so much on like the CGI and like the Irishman effect of like making him younger and then giving him, I mean, it's almost the same shot as uh, in the dark night when like Aaron Eckhart rolls over and he's two face, you know, but then it doesn't yeah. make sense either because like, his whole face is fucked up. Like it's not just the mustache area. And then it cuts to 20 years later and it's just the mustache that need cover his, like his whole cheek is blown out. Like what's the, what's the story there? Those follicles coming back. Is that what you're asking? I I mean, the face came back. I I cannot explain facial damage into excellent and tidy facial hair growth. Um, but I think one of the things I think he like mumbles about Katrine a few times in the 2017 movie. He's just like in his on the train being like, oh, Katrine. And then somebody gets murdered and we never think about that again. Um, but I one of the things that immediately and kind of surprisingly for me, like set this movie apart from the first one was that not only through the backstory, but also the way Branagh plays Poirot, he does seem uh, quieter kind of more puttering, more mumbly, uh, more alienated from the people around him. Uh, and people are also aware that he's sort of an alienating presence, which I frankly was not expecting to think this movie was notably better than the first one. But I think that that, that arrangement of characters and putting Poirot more on the margins just makes a million times uh, more sense. And I'm glad that they found their way to it. Yeah, and I think his relationship with the different uh, characters, which I'm sure we'll get into, but like the the romantic potential that kind of arises and his friendship uh, with Book, who's a character in uh, Murder on the Orient Express as well, um, it it just like it 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 makes more sense. It fits into a context. It all feels more meaningful. I think you you get more of a sense of him as a character and not just like a cipher for solving this mystery, which I feel like he, I mean used like poorly that's what he is that's what Poirot is he's just kind of the genius who comes in and fixes things and then walks away yeah I he was almost like the the biggest personality in the room in the 2017 movie which was just a bizarre way to conceive of that character um this have you revisited that one uh, recently I had never seen it so I just watched it um last week ah um, uh, okay expecting them to be like exactly the same and in lots of ways they are exactly the same it's the same like nonsensical tracking shots over and over to be like look at all these people which one um there it's Brandon pretty much shoots himself the same way the, the i don't know what you guys have to say about the the cgi and the visuals but everything just looks phony as shit um so it's got a lot of the same problems but it's a little different what you guys don't agree you think the you think the setting looks good no i sadly agree oh, okay. <laughs> absolutely yeah <laughs> i mean no, in we, the production's defense like trains don't don't exist anymore so like they would have had to do it digitally but there's no excuse to not have, like, boats are still very much there. Right. The Nile, to our knowledge, is present. Uh, allegedly. How many times have we seen Egypt in the desert on film? And you just get this weird sensation where he 
you know, what is Poirot's just uh, eating dessert in front of the pyramids of Giza when he sees Book up there climbing it. And it's sort of like a, it's a cloudless day, but the lighting is as though it is very cloudy with like sharpened contrast on everyone. It just looks. Uh, it was a cloudy day yeah. in the studio that day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, there's like a green haze kind of around everybody that I couldn't uh stop noticing. <laughs> it's just like a very poorly keyed out uh yeah, green screen in almost every scene. Uh it was it was almost like a game within the movie was spotting uh yeah, the the, the really obvious CGI backdrops. Well, and that was every scene. <laughs> you win yeah. every time because it's every scene. <laughs> Well, weirdly, I feel like there are establishing shots without the boat that are done in, like, morning light that feel very real. And then as soon as the boat is back, it's like, I, I was ready for you to be sad and or on top of this, Bob, because, like, I'm sure you've just been thinking about what these universes look like for as long as you've been working on this graphic novel. And the look of these movies is insane. I mean, do you think the desserts were real? That's the thing that I kept wondering. Oh. Is it, or do you think those were uh, added in post also? I mean, Did they uh, really have enough champagne to fill the Nile? <laughs> to fill the Nile. <laughs> Gal Gadot's taken a lot of flack for her performance in this movie. Uh, justified or unjustified, guys? I'd say she's awful. Please say more. You know what? Um, I mean, I think that that trailer line really is kind of the culmination of these like weird deliveries that she gives at every turn. And the movie really hangs on her being like, not only rich, but also, you know, kind of, I don't know, like, like naive or something, but also not naive. I don't know. I didn't really like understand that character. Cause on one hand, you know, she kind of screws over her friend in order to like marry her boyfriend. But then like, she's like, Oh yeah. But then she's like naive enough to think that like that could possibly work out and like get ultimately duped. But like, she's also smart enough that she like, even on vacation is like, I'm going to read every word of this contract. Like I always do. Like I'm so smart and savvy with money. So I don't know. It, it, it was a kind of a weird, and she doesn't know how to play it either. Um, but it, it's it's a weirdly drawn character. Uh, maybe that's just from the the source material. But I, I never was able to kind of make heads or tails. I found myself thinking during the movie, watching Gal Gadot's performance, that she seems miscast, um, and I think it is like a. I don't want to overanalyze it but like I, I think it's a problem with her as an actress in general is maybe she needs slightly different roles because I think at the end of the day yeah she's kind of a conflicted character in this but I think you're supposed to like her I think it, it, she is supposed to be a good and decent character if naive and if you know she's I almost think like an past. Anne Hathaway maybe hmm. of five hmm. or ten years ago is like a better person in this role because then you see that like oh i'm insecure like i have all this money and i know that i'm beautiful but i'm still insecure because i don't know who's using me for those things uh and then when she has that monologue about like when you're rich you can't trust anybody like it actually resonates because you can see that in other scenes 
but I don't know. Like, just the I think she's just kind of a Godot is just kind of a, a microcosm for this the weird. Let's get everybody we can think of that was cool in 2015 into this movie, and so it just like <laughs> the people that she's with, like. Oh, she was dating Russell Brand, who parenthetically like doesn't have a line in the first act of this movie. Like that should say something about this character, but because we know him so little, I don't know. There's things that I felt like could have done more work to kind of establish what it is this woman's looking for from her personal relationships, and that simply wasn't there. Another person from five or ten years ago that I think would have alleviated some problems is the Army Hammer of five to ten years ago, and not the Army Hammer of today. He plays uh, the the husband in in this. Um, what is it, Simon? Uh, Simon Doyle. Yeah, with uh, just a very suspicious face and mustache and character all around. Um, this movie kind of hinges on this uh, this dirty dancing. That happens in the in the opening scene, and in retrospect, Nights, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or Cairo Nights, wherever they were. Yeah, they Cairo in, Nights. Were they in Washington D.C. actually in the opening scene? I think they're in London. They're oh, in like London. a jazz club in okay. London. Uh, mm. I think, yeah. And weirdly, that dirty dancing like takes on a lot of meaning if you once you learn the the twist of this movie and and see like uh, evaluate how was the dancing with one person versus with another person? Cause yeah, we, we, we meet Simon, uh, uh, grinding all around, uh, flapper style with, uh, Jackie DeBelfort played by, uh, Emma McKee, um, who then is sort of trailing, uh, Simon and Lynette on their extended honeymoon in this way that is, uh, is very suspicious. Um, other characters worth mentioning. No, you brought up, uh, Russell Brand, who's playing this, as you said, largely silent doctor. <laughs> <laughs> through the first hour <laughs> of the movie. Um, you also have uh, Sophie Akinato, um playing Salome Otterborn, who's a jazz singer who seems modeled after kind of like a Billie Holiday slash sister Rosetta Tharp kind of character. Um, and then her niece, Letitia Wright, um, who people would know from Black Panther, um, is friends with Lynette, played by Gal Gadot. Um, so that's kind of our cast of characters um was there was there like a relationship or a performance in wait here did you say the, annette benning i forgot annette benning uh playing mother book um sorry and then like there's that. the the other lady and her nurse oh yeah boy, the socialist just made very boo. very little <laughs> well yes first of all boo um but they just yeah. made no impression on me whatsoever <laughs> um yeah, who anybody stand out to you guys? Is there anyone that you liked or were interested in? Or let me ask you this. Well, let me throw one more question on top of three questions. Um, in a movie like this, where it's sort of like a parlor game, there's like eight different people and who did it and they all could have done it. Do you guys find yourself caring or investing in like the outcomes or the possibilities? Um, are you just like, no, I really hope it's not that person because I care about them? Or, or is there a way in which everybody's so shuffled up that it doesn't matter? How do you guys feel about it? I almost feel like in some editing bay somewhere, there's like a six-hour cut of this movie where everyone has like a storyline and intentions and goals and needs and desires. But instead, there's just like weird acts. And I wonder if this had to do with I mean, Army Hammer is the obvious thing, but also like Russell Brand and Letitia Wright are also like kind of 
in the doghouse for offenses for, you know, being uh, un-PC or whatever. Um, them more about uh, COVID stuff uh, and less about eating people for sport. Um, but it does seem like, I don't know, like it's so weird that Army Hammer's like not in the third act of this movie other than to be, spoiler, like the part of the, the climactic reveal. Like, did what, you forget just, about the most suspicious person? Well, remember yeah, him. I did. Here he is. <laughs> I did, and it seemed like too that there was—I don't know—it just seemed like there were more scenes or something. Like the editing felt very odd. Like Chance, you and I were texting about like the lead up to the scene where uh, Godot's like in that Cleopatra thing by the water, and it's like, what? Wh- why are we here? Like, what's the? What's the transition here? Like, why? What's the what's the purpose of this scene? She and, climbs like, up in like a. To be clear, it's like a twelve foot tall like stepladder, like wicker man kind of, um, <laughs> like costume. Just because somebody made a reference earlier to how she played Cleopatra in a production of Antony and Cleopatra, is that just sitting there, like in the you know in this time period instead of like the you right. know when you go to a uh, like a farm or something, they've got like the cutouts where you like put your head and you're like in the cow body, and then like the, someone's yeah. in the chicken head and all that. It's like this is. Here's a, a solid gold crown that you can wear on this 12-foot Cleopatra for photo ops. Yeah, watching this and Murder Mystery back-to-back, it kind of made me think uh, that the movie Clue, it's kind of a stroke of genius with all the three different endings, just because I think it taps into the idea of like when there are this many people in play and the script has had to sow the seeds of culpability with everyone, it almost doesn't matter who it was like it's there's not going to be a great unless it's like an exquisitely exquisitely written script and you have this like sense of catharsis around it 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 might seem almost random so why not do three different kind of fun house endings well the other weird thing about this movie too is i feel like the murder the titular death comes very very late like i would say we're like we're with them minutes. in Egypt and then on the boat for at least more than half of the movie and then because of the runtime the actual investigation just feels sort of like a montage and then we're kind of at the end there's no real red herrings in this one it's like oh could this person have done it i mean to to reference murder mystery like i think what they get kind of right about that movie is how ridiculous the montage is where it's like oh it could be this person for this reason or that person for that reason but it's not so self-serious as death of the nile treats it um but yeah i mean you're kind of waiting for the crime to happen which i would say the the you know the the hang leading up to the actual murder is not that there's like not that much chemistry uh in this cast well, and like you said, it, it feels like these things are cast to get the biggest possible names in them. Uh, the Murder on the Orient Express, I think, was even more uh, egregious in that. I mean, it's got an absolutely stacked cast well, got of Gad. people on that train. You got Gad in there. <laughs> Gad's doing all the heavy lifting. Forget uh, Gal. Give me Gad. I mean, Judy Dench, Olivia Coleman, Willem Dafoe. Penelope Cruz. Uh, Wow, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. But not to not to dwell too much on like on Murder on the Orient Express, but also the prior previous uh, adaptations of Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile are absolutely stacked. The seven, uh, the Sydney Lumet ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, 
I mean, Sean Connery and Ingrid Bergman right. and yeah, Martin Balsam, like they're absolutely stacked. And like, th- that's kind of a cheap way. It's kind of a gimmicky way to get people in. You could, you could have a cast, I think, that has chemistry and like works well together that isn't necessarily made up of the biggest names. Uh, if the actors actually had like natural chemistry, that would maybe make the proceedings a little bit more compelling rather than just having them like grinding on each other (laughs) next to an Egyptian temple and telling you that that's love or lust. Nobody puts army in the corner. We probably, I just think we should be teaching our children that that is love, frankly, and look out for the rock. Um, (laughs) Yeah. They need a sign. Watch out for grind. Grinding may cause falling rocks. Is there anything else you guys want to say about Branagh's Poirot? I mean, I, for me, it kind of taps into, like, the first time I saw Kenneth Branagh was in the Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, where he played Gilderoy Lockhart. That would have come out when I was, like, 11. And he's playing this very kind of uh, vain, uh, camera-mugging character, who I think it turned out in years to come was, like, surprisingly closer to who Kenneth Branagh actually uh, was than, I, than a, like, 11-year-old me ever ever could have known. But um, there are some ways in which, like, he, he, he shoots this character and shoots these movies that I think are, I don't know, they're just a little embarrassing. Not in a way that, like, makes me mad. It's hard to be mad at someone who's so transparently kind of vain. Um, but... It's no Peter's friends. What's that? It's no Peter's friends. It's no Peter's friends. I mean, this is a guy who like made like uh, Shakespeare adaptations, and then in 2018, and all is true was like, but no, I should actually play Shakespeare. Um, Like that's the level of self confidence we're dealing with with uh, Sir Kenny. Well, it's so weird to like juxtapose that with like Belfast. You know, like the guy does have more nuanced notes <laughs> up his sleeve. We should mention this man is up for best director at the Oscars right now as we're speaking. But I totally agree with you that like this $200 million movie does feel like more of a vanity project than a semi-autobiographical, you know, black and white movie, which is nuts. But Belfast also doesn't look good. These movies don't look good at all. Sorry. Go ahead, Bob. No, that's uh, that, that's a great point, I, and I think that's to both of their detriment. Is that it's it's constantly distracting when you, you're interest you're introducing like CGI animals uh, every once in a while. Um, I I just found myself wondering like why these movies exist, mm-hmm. why he felt the need to re to to make a new adaptation of these specific properties now, why he got attached, uh, and why he felt he should play Poirot of anybody. Um, it does, yeah. Maybe speaks a little to vanity. There's a Um, level of self-belief there that I, I just don't understand. Maybe, maybe we'd all be better off if we believed in ourselves a little more, like like Ken. But I don't know, don't know. If anyone's wondering what David Suchet is up to, I believe he's got quite a following. Just reading the Bible on YouTube. He just uh, guy just reads the Bible aloud. It sounds. I'm sure it sounds very pleasing to the ear. Sign me up, absolutely. Yeah, I did watch. He did a little uh, video, or, or, or he did a little piece, I think, for PBS. There was like a tour of the Orient Express where he took the train and actually did his own little ride. I mean, he did. He, they did an adaptation, obviously, too, for Masterpiece Theater, 
or what have you, but it's, it's just David Suchet and no, I think sans mustache and his, and his little bag, just taking the trip uh, and experiencing the train that is, I think is also, it's either on YouTube or it's like available on the PBS website and it's delightful. That's Highly cool. recommend that. Good rack. Yeah. Well, should we get to whether we're going to officially recommend this movie? Talk about uh, how we rate movies and then go for it. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I'm gonna say that this movie is a bad, bad. My God. Colon. I think that <laughs> what we've talked about with the, all the digital and like the, the weird overcasting of this movie, it's just like, it doesn't add up to good filmmaking and it doesn't make like a new or interesting version of this that like hasn't already been made. Uh, so there's kind of the question of, well, why does this exist? And then, I mean, I love things that are superfluous and over the top, but I, and I don't think it, I don't even think it accidentally ends up being that entertaining. I think it's a slog to get through. I think it's fairly obvious who did it. I think like the, the directing's kind of poor in that you like they telegraph all the clues like there's no real red herrings of like oh maybe this person did it's like i can't find my red paint i hope red paint doesn't play a role even when bob and i were watching this movie that that when book was wearing that goofy orange raincoat bob (laughs) leans in he's just like what's i bet that goofy raincoat's gonna where's his where's his raincoat going and obviously like two scenes later it's like book you don't have your raincoat like what happened it's it's just obvious it was it's so obvious like these movies need to be nuanced and they need to be about characters and they need to be about like the weird confrontations these people have out of desperation and i just don't feel like any of them landed in a way that made sense or was that entertaining so uh, a bad, with all due respect to uh, all the talented people, uh, bad, bad. That's really nice. You don't normally preface your remarks with by saying all due respect to everyone who made it. Maybe we should do that every time. <laughs> it's implied. Um, I, if I were going to drag the river to find something to like about this a little more than than Noah did, I think it would be that I again <laughs> am kind of amazed that the that the Poirot performance clicks in a little bit more like he's a little more uh like grandfatherly when he's like sort of advising army and gal to just just go home if you think you're being like trailed by this woman like just go somewhere else and he he says consider the cost of love and a bargain at that he he uses silence and discomfort and embarrassment um a lot better in 
in this movie um, that also I, I think fits in with from what little I've read kind of how Christy, Agatha Christie over time, the more and more she wrote, she's like, I don't really like this guy. Like you wouldn't want to hang out with him. He's awkward. He's egocentric. Um, he's weird. And uh, against all odds, I'm really surprised that the second movie kind of finds that a little bit more. Of course, I agree with all the negative things you guys were saying. I will probably give it a bad good. Um, I thought it was some dumb fun. Bad good being a movie that is technically bad, but you enjoy a little bit. Yep. Just to demonstrate a my soft bad good is no. I'm going to check in with you every month going forward, being like, "So did you watch Death on the Nile again? <laughs> you found it so rewatchable. Yeah, so rewatch value is kind of the binding critique of the system, where it's like, you really think that you're going to watch this shit again? And I probably will not ever. Eh, eh. I'm going to say bad good, and you can check in with me. I am going to say first of all, yeah, Raincoat steals the show. Uh, let's get a spinoff on HBO Max about that pink raincoat. Yeah, uh, I'm interested to see where it's been, where it's going. Um, <laughs> I uh, would say, yeah, I would, I would agree with a lot of what's been said. I think it is an improvement on Murder on the Orient Express, um, even even as as lacking as it is in some ways. I think with a less star-studded cast, they gave us more with the character of Poirot, who really is, I think, the, the draw for these, um, and fit him in, gave him a love interest, gave him actual stakes, uh, emotional, real stakes uh, in the proceedings. Um, and as someone who is working currently on an adaptation and finds that, yeah, when you have these kind of episodic stories where Poirot just kind of comes and goes into these people's lives, solves these mysteries, and then abruptly, I just clapped, uh, departs. Um, it can be you diff- don't have to tell us to that make you an clapped. Actual... <laughs> just in case people were wondering. What was that? Was, I, it, was that thunder? <laughs> Distant thunder. That was a, the, the jaws of a CGI crocodile snapping shut. <laughs> <laughs> on, on a on a poor five thousand like, miles from here, I- ibis or whatever. Yeah, um, <laughs> ibis, ibis, gotta be ibis. I- but good job, <laughs> any any either way. Um, all that to say, I think uh, due to my involvement and uh, with the uh, Agatha Christie estate, my contractual obligations, I have to give this movie a good good rating. <laughs> Go see it now. Nice. Uh, uh, Swim, don't walk uh, to catch <laughs> Death on the Nile. We've never had an now. openly compromised guest before. That's what a welcome addition. You knew what you were getting into. All right. I mean, sorry. Fun. Um, uh, yeah. Well, this movie really ran the gamut then, sincere or not, rating wise. Um, should we move on to Dead Calm, 1989? After a tragedy. John Ingram and his wife, Ray, are spending some time isolated at sea when they come across a stranger who has abandoned a sinking ship. Alone on a sea of endless calm, it was easy to imagine they were the only two people on Earth. But into their perfect world, there came a stranger. Stand up! Tried to take her across the Pacific. On your own? No. There were six of us. Yeah, this died ten days ago. 
I'm going on board her. Can't do that. He's fast asleep. He won't even know. God, you're pretty. What about those people, huh? There wasn't any food poisoning, was there? No way! <laughs> you think I'm making this up? No, I don't. You sound so much like them, Ray. It's scary. <laughs> Dead Calm, A Voyage Into Fear. So this is directed by, uh, I don't know, B-level adult action drama director Philip hey Noyce. What? He had a couple like of years Noyce there movies. where he was maybe like A-minus. No. He does not have any other A-minus movies, I don't think. Um, but you would know him from Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger, Bone Collector, The Saint, Salt. I don't think he's ever gotten anything... His movies have only gotten bad bads on our show, which is why I would take him at take him. Do you remember when you had to reevaluate your whole childhood after we watched The Saint again together? It, it turned out it was really, really, really bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do remember that. And then your um, mother had poisoned your mind over your entire adolescence with mediocre filmmaking? Yeah, we covered a lot of ground in that episode. Um, so it's based on a 1963 novel by Charles Williams of the same name, which was for a long time supposed to be adapted by Orson Welles. Uh, that never happened. Um, but thankfully it did uh, land in the hands of a bunch of Australians and New Zealanders in the late 80s, <laughs> kind of making a... It, it was a major... It was a Warner Brothers film, um, but you're seeing a lot of people right before they do bigger stuff. Like, this feels like a very um, auditionary, aspirational kind of movie from people like Noyce and Nicole Kidman, who's just about to be in Days of Thunder. Um, and even the DP, uh, Dean Semler, who had done the first two Mad Max movies, is about to go shoot Dances with Wolves. Um, so there's a lot of people here who um, are trying really hard, uh, kind of scraping the ceiling of whatever the Aussie thriller space would have been in, in 1989. Uh, the three characters Noah mentioned, uh, Captain Ingram is played by Sam Neill, uh, his wife Ray is Nicole Kidman, and uh, the broad-backed, sweaty stranger who comes upon... Who comes he's upon extremely moist. Yeah. He's, he's every so shot, he's moist. Film. Absolutely. He's uh, none other than William Zane. Uh, Billy to his familiars. Uh, I guess Sir could, William Zane. Uh, yeah, is he a sir? <laughs> I don't he's a think sir. he's a sir. I like that you said familiars as though he like has a human that kind of like keeps his vampiric uh, uh, lifestyle intact. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> a yeah, this is a, years old. This is Billy's breakout role. I mean, he'd been like the fourth friend of Biff in a couple Back to the Futures. Yeah, I mean, somebody else gets the Phantom uh, without a movie like this. Right, right. Um, can we explain a little more of the plot, Noah? What's this tragedy that befalls them? So, yeah, he's a, Sam Neill's a Navy man, and he like comes home for the holidays, and his wife suspiciously doesn't meet him at the train station, and we realize quickly that she's been in a car accident and their son who somehow untethered himself from his car seat has like 
flown through the windshields in some that I think is one of the weird like over like the hand being overplayed in this sort of traumatic backstory is the yeah. the this rubber child like going through this windshield uh, on this <laughs> rainy night um but yeah and then they're kind of on this this like this sea cruise to try to therapy feel cruise. yeah therapy cruise just to like feel feel better about it but there's something kind of haunting too about like Sam Neill really doesn't say that much and like Nicole Kidman's like crying a lot and all he really says is like the pain's not going to go away and our kid's really dead and he's not coming back and I almost thought there was something sort of anti-Hollywood about the fact that they're like you know, we can't be around people right now. Like we have to be out here doing this sort of, you know, um, in this kind of purgatory until we're ready to rejoin society, you know, and it's almost like the only way Sam Neill knows how to heal is by returning to what he knows best, which is like dealing with shitty situations on the, on the high seas. Uh, And so, and, and it's, you know, Ray, I think, in an interesting kind of turn for this kind of character in a late 80s action movie uh, or thriller, is she has a lot of agency. Like, she has a lot of pain, but there's never, you know, that scene where she doesn't know what to do, so she gives up. Like, she's always trying things. And I think even before Zane enters the picture, like, seeing the two of them kind of operate as, you know, standalone characters with pain, but also with, like, you know, scene-to-scene intentions, uh, it, it, it separates this movie from just a, oh, let's put some sad people on a boat and then, like, throw a stranger in the mix. Well, yeah, there's this really weird way in which they are blank slated out there because Neil is the kind of classically masculine older husband and Nicole Kidman seems really young I mean she is right. I mean she was she's like maybe 22 um, but we see her kind of trying to to swim it off and, and looking and looking gorgeous and there's like this weird dynamic of like we had a young child and now we don't like where are we at in terms of like relationship self-concept and 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 sex and attraction and all these things so there's this really unsteady reconfiguring that's kind of suggested in the first five minutes before um this the hot sociopath who suffered a psychic break rolls up on the ship um and then he spoilers all that what's that, that about the psychic he's break a, that he's, that he's a, hot that he's hot, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. You don't know till the end if he's hot or not. Uh. <laughs> to your point, though, like, I don't think I ever have seen Billy Zane in a role where he's, like, this hot. He's, like, very what? hot. What? A horse or a rat? <laughs> like, he's always he's always getting cucked. Like, he's not he's not the cucker. He's the cucky. Mm, well, for one shining moment. Um Bob, what's your initial reaction to Dead Calm? Where, where would you like to to jump off? It was not the movie I expected. I expected to be I expected it to be a little bit more uh, psychological in the relationship between Zane and Kidman, based purely on the poster. I thought that it would be a little bit more of like an overt seduction tale, and it's not. It's not that at all. It's definitely like a survival story right. uh, for both of the main characters. Um, and I was ple- I was pleasantly surprised by that, um, by what it turned out to be, because yeah, I think it could have easily fallen into 
well, it could have been a bad love triangle, which is what I thought it was going to be. And it, and yeah, it's not that. But even within the context of like the survival framework, uh, it could have been so much more, I don't know, stereotypical uh, and, and just not as exciting or tense. Um, I had never heard of it before. I wasn't familiar with it before that uh, beforehand. But it's the kind of movie that like a younger me would have definitely wanted to see um, after Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not right after Jurassic Park. I was pretty young. It's, it's maybe not for someone that young. But like it is a, it's like a great vehicle for Sam Neill um, and Nicole Kidman. Uh, he's even got like the the aviator shades that he wears in Jurassic Park, but he's rocking just that full on stoic, uh, slightly apersonal, like asocial, yeah. angry, uh, macho hero that like Sam Neill has down so well, uh, and so it was really fun to see him uh, fix a boat for like an hour and a half. <laughs> well, yeah, for better uh, and worse, it really sidelines him. Yeah, it becomes this oh, yeah, separate absolutely. movie where he's kind of like this Hemingway-esque male parable or something mm-hmm. where he knows this boat's going to sink, but he has to keep it afloat for as long as possible, waiting for his wife, who parenthetically is used to being away from him while he fixes boats that are about to sink for a living you know, making the best of it and simultaneously negotiating this like traumatic, abusive relationship that she's found herself in, you know, because he physically isn't there. And there's something so fascinating about these, these, these dual timelines, these dual narratives sort of, you know, she's doing the thing uh, that he's doing to the boat, but she's doing it to a person, just keeping this guy at bay long enough to get, you know, within striking distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if I think one of the glaring flaws of the movie is like Sam Neill could have used maybe one and a half more things to do. Like for a while, it's like it's like it's really cool that he's trapped on here, and and that's going to be its own piece of the puzzle. And then, you know, another thirty minutes of riveting uh, Ray and Huey stuff happens, and you're like, wow, Captain Ingram really doesn't have anything to do except drown. <laughs> Um, he's still cranking they cut back several times to him just cranking that crank he's like oh he's up to his waist in water now oh, up to his neck in water now he's still cranking oh he's almost all the way under still cranking just like 1.25 more ideas would have been great um over there um but the yeah he never the, loses his cool though and there's something amazing about that because i also don't think nicole kidman really loses her cool either like they both have their plans that they are going through and it's almost like this is just another day at the office. You know, it's these two very steady people who trauma is coming towards, like whether it's their dead kid or this almost like this maniac person. I I think one of the main flaws for me of the film is not really establishing the you know, what Billy Zane's endgame is. Like, he's almost too randomly bizarre. Um, like, I wanted him to, like, have more of a, 
you know, because I, I think there's another version of this movie and maybe this gets at the thing that you're that you're scratching at chance. But like there's a, another version of this movie where there's maybe 10 more minutes where all three of them are on the sailboat together and Zane's trying to convince them that like he's nice and charming and he just needs them to do X, Y and Z and everything's going to be fine. But it really isn't that movie. He like kind of shows up, can't really talk, takes a nap and then Sam Neill kind of puts himself in harm's way. Whereas like, I would have liked to have seen the separation of the, of the married couple be a little bit more intentional on Billy Zane's part. I hear that. And yet I also think that one of the great things about the Huey character that sort of takes this a little to the side of the really standard thriller you think it's going to be is that, yeah, Huey doesn't have an end game. I mean, when she wakes up from being knocked unconscious and sees him just kind of like gorilla dancing around, like faux break dancing to that, like not velvet underground song. Like this is just like some guy who like seemingly wants to party. This is an ocean hitchhiker story basically. Um, and his sort of lack of uh, endgame wants, but his preponderance of, of other wants to seduce people kind of gives Ray a lot, a lot, a lot to chew on in terms of action and tragedy. I mean, the implications that Bob is talking about from from the poster, like that's the movie that Billy Zane thinks this is in his head. And she gets to kind of watch him believe that he can seduce her which becomes his undoing, which I love. But I think, and maybe this is outrageous to say, but I almost think that she's kind of into him. I don't think so. I think, up, her, I think her, go ahead. What do you think, Bob? Is she into I him? don't think there's ever really a moment, no, uh, that she's in him. I think she's playing him throughout. Uh, even, yeah, even when they eventually do uh have sex i think she's using that purely as like one more tool at her disposal to keep him busy and at bay because uh, so he represents because if i can play it out a little bit more i think he represents i think billy zane represents the polar opposite of sam neil like it almost feels like he's too cold he's too calculating he's too compartmentalized and here's this like very feeling weirdo who is equally like not tethered to the world and sort of anti like whatever the anti navy is like he's just going around sinking people's boats or something uh but it almost feels like she is a little bit seduced by, well, A, because he's hot. And I think that that's intentional. It's not just like he's this weird looking guy on the boat. Like he is physically striking. And so I think that there may be a little bit of like she can get her revenge and she can take control of the situation. But I think there is like a little bit more of a black widow kind of underpinning on this thing. I mm, I just don't agree. I I think she's. I think that's how she's reading how Billy Zane's reading it, which she's like, my one move here is to like, try and embrace this guy's like humanity, his like narcissistic side where he's telling me that he's in art school. Um, when he comes down and she's, she's crying because the radio doesn't work and it seems like Sam Neill's going to drown. She sees him seeing that he thinks, Oh, I can win her over in this moment. Like I am the shoulder for this. And 
all the way she tries to just barely negotiate out of sex before what is essentially a rape does occur. And then the camera stays on her face in that time where you sort of see her working through not just the agony of the situation, but also just the like the fuck, like I couldn't make it up to the harpoon gun. And like, what am I going to do next? Like she has, it's all playing out the string in my opinion. Let me ask you this. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bob. Uh, Well, this is, this is kind of an aside, but I, I just, uh, was impressed uh, with the fact that Billy Zane is not absolutely shredded in this movie. Mm. There was it's just something I found myself thinking as as we watch when he eventually does turn up, and yeah, he is very moist and he's, he's shirtless and in these like short shorts. He is not. I feel like if this movie was made today and if he was played by Alexander Sarsgaard or whoever, right? Um, he would be like six feet of like rippling muscle. Yeah, and there's something like very realistic about him just kind of showing up as this uh, kind of lanky, but with a certain Zane-esque quality <laughs> that is like inescapable. He might as well be hacky sacking on a quad somewhere. Totally, yeah. I feel like if this movie was made now, I would cast either Taylor Kitsch or Ansel Elgort in this role. Oof. Uh... The Ansel Elgort one might carry a little too much resonance, but go ahead. I feel like there were moments in this where, having enjoyed West Side Story, I felt like Elgort's got kind of the charm and the smarm a little bit that he could pull this off. And then Kitsch, like, I mean, you take his Friday Night Lights character. Bob, you're deep into the Friday Night Lights. You take that and, like, add a little bit more narcissism to his I don't give a fuck about anything. Like, he could definitely take over a sailboat. Yeah, and I do, and I totally also I agree that there's like a version of this movie that is 25 minutes longer where you explore all of this maybe a little bit more verbally. I think it's one of the movie's strengths that so much is communicated in this movie. So much is done with so little dialogue. It's so sparse. Like that opening, the opening scene where he shows up at the train station, and there's no exposition or anything. It just you're just kind of like right into it. I. I don't know if you could get away with doing that today either. I love that though. I love that you know something's gone because you see two anonymous guys looking at a photograph. The whole climactic scene of the movie of Ray coming back to rescue the captain is completely silent right up until the moment she breathes in his ear and says, I found you. And boy, can you really feel the difference of the studio mandated ending that was shot seven months later? Because <laughs> it's like edited totally differently. There's so much dialogue. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, like it's a there's a great use of of, of sparse and, and silence and and uh, boy, what a good looking goddamn movie. I mean, yeah, the granted they have like the whole Great Barrier Reef and Pacific Ocean at their disposal, but that the that feeling as they're like sailing away from Captain Ingram and he's like, Wait, if they go over the horizon, I lose them. Like we're we're fucked. I was just gonna say that's the thing that's maybe missing a little bit with a movie like Death on the Nile, where so much is rendered. Uh, digitally um, or in post-production that you never get a sense that they are really on any water. No matter how many times the camera goes beneath water and we're looking up at characters from below it. Like, I don't buy that they're on a river or even on a boat. Um, Whereas in this, you are out there with them. You are stuck on that boat. And it's, yeah, the sea and and everything is is rendered gorgeously. Totally. I think the visuals 
of this really are striking and, you know, add a level of quality and authenticity. And two, just like the production design of seeing the inside, like the innards of this sailboat, especially the, like the souped up one that Ingram clearly like put his heart and soul into, you know, as someone who loves sailing so much, but it's just seeing like how in a, on a, on a vessel where things are going to get knocked over and like, you know, heavy waves are going to come and whatever, like seeing how things are tethered to the walls or to the floor, or to the ceiling and how they kind of become weapons, you know, even when, when things break apart or when something unexpected happens. Like, I think that's such a, you know, using the boat itself as that character, um, Amazing that they were both shot uh, in sound stages. Uh, this one just looks so much better. I did just think kidding. the foreshadowing was a bit much when um, uh, the dog knocks over the tanks of compressed air and Sam Neill says, now be careful, that's compressed <laughs> air. <laughs> if you rupture that, it's going to blow us all to kingdom come. And you, you think in the background, it's going to come back that compressed air tank at some point. I think Billy Zane is going <laughs> to bite that, and possibly that's how they'll get him. She's going to say, smile. I can't do an Australian accent. That was real Scottish. Smile, you son of a bitch. Smile, you son of a bitch. That was awful. Um, yeah. Not a, you know, very thriller stock and trade to have a dog where you're like, is the crazy person going to kill the dog? I would say this 100%. dog uh, does not make itself very useful. And I don't, I never want to say any animal deserves to die, but like this one, this guy, I mean, he had a job to do too and he didn't do it. Uh, the dog's a traitor. Ben, uh, yeah. The dog has, is completely faithless. <laughs> he goes and gets the keys out of the water. What an asshole. He's a bastard. What about when Billy Zane <laughs> comes back in to taunt her and he has the key in his mouth and he's like, I fetched it. There's just some great physical, like, fuck you, but I'm playing with you acting from Billy Zane in this movie, too. Last thing I would that I will say, you, you guys can say as much more as you want, um, but boy, do we see a lot of movies... That, today that are quote-unquote about trauma like we're just so excited to be like this is a good horror movie because of trauma or this is an interesting series because of trauma um i really like the way this movie um you know lays bare this whole relationship at the beginning like we were talking about with this super traumatic act um but then there are no flashbacks there are no conversations about it. And what you have is mostly a visual payoff where the next time she's in a head-on collision with an oncoming vehicle, she turns her husband into her child and is redeemed. And no more needs to be said about that. And I, I love the way you can work a theme so simply um, and with so much negative space, like Bob was saying. Yeah, I, it, and the ending, the pat ending of actually defeating Zane in such like an obvious manner rather than the more thematic ending of having him just kind of disappear. And it's unclear what he did. Did he escape? Did he take his own life? Uh, He's on to the next it's pirate ship. That, it's just a question that's going to have to hang over them and it's never really going to be gone. Um, it's a better ending. It is. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a flaw of the movie to kind of... Uh, I prefer the, the flare gun to, to the face. This is... Yeah. It was quite a shot. You let you side with Warner Brothers on this one. Um, <laughs> it's, it looks great, but it, it is a real like, we want to know what happens to him. And it's just like, he's a he's a fucking emotional terrorist. He is the hitcher. He's just on to the next thing. Right. But they're like, no, flare gun to the fucking face. And it 
it looks good. It's a good. The best effect. shot in the movie is shot. after he falls off the boat and like his face melts in the water or whatever, and then it cuts <laughs> back to the two of them looking like a couple would look at a restaurant that like wasn't that good and they probably won't go back to. <laughs> Everything about the ending is worse than the rest of the movie, including the acting. But it's like that was not. That wasn't that good. Let's no. not do. Let's not go we there. Don't again. have him on this boat again. <laughs> Yeah, no more, no more guests you... on the boat. <laughs> Did you guys read about the the deleted scene filmed by George Miller, directed by George Miller, that would have featured Sam Neill's character, the captain, going up against a shark uh, while trying to fix the boat? Oh, because there's that scene this... where he, he's like bleeding into the water, and like the camera kind of comes up on him from underneath. It definitely suggests, yeah, yeah, that's kind of. The blood in the water scared me. Even the dog swimming in the water, I, I was wondering if at some point, like, uh, some shark might come up and, and get him. But apparently... Pippin. Release the Miller what? cut. No, Pippet. Pippet, yeah. Sorry. Um, you got it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I heard um, it. That, yeah, that sounds uh, expensive, but I'd love to see George Miller <laughs> make a shark come on screen for 30 seconds. Um, yeah. Gang, for me, this one was a, was a good good. I think it has, I think it has two clear flaws with Sam Neill having nothing to do for 30 minutes and the goofy ending. Um, but uh, boy, did I really appreciate the rest of it. What do you guys think? Oh, I, I would absolutely say it's, yeah, it's great. Great. Um, dead calm. Why is it called dead calm? What, what, what do we think the meaning behind that is? Is that, a, is that a nautical term? Is that like the wind? Does someone, no one says the words, Oh, it's dead calm out there at any point during the movie, do they? Or did I just miss that? No, I don't think they do, but I think it I think it it must be a term for current and tide ferocity or lack thereof. From that from that title, I was expecting there to be like a moment where they can't get the boat to go because there's no wind. Like a la Master and Commander Far Side of the World. Uh but yeah, there really isn't that. No, I'm so glad I saw this movie though. Um I'm so glad I know that it exists now. Uh, it, it fits so nicely into my Sam Neill canon. Yeah, uh, it's it's exactly yeah what I what I wanted it to be, and I didn't even know I needed it. What else is in your uh, Sam Neill canon besides JP and? You know? Oh, JP three is going to be in there. JP three has got to be in there. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, no, you know what? Um, the river. <laughs> the uh, it, it's escaping me right now, but with, with Lawrence Fishburne, Event uh, Horizon, the, Event Horizon. Oh, Event Horizon's incredible. Event Horizon, too, too much. I'm sorry, too far with the eyes and with the Liberate uh, Tutte May. <laughs> I uh, too squeamish, too squeamish for me. Right. This movie is it rides that line exactly of what I want, uh, what I want from the Sam Man, as his friends call him. <laughs> Do you yeah. think that? Because I can only imagine that his work on his two paddocks wine, like, do you think he's, like, pumping those grapes the way he's pumping out the water from the the old sailboat? Great call. Uh-huh. He's got a little pipe that he can drink the wine from. Totally. Uh, 
dig it, dig a little but he's drink. just a guy who just like likes the he likes the process. Uh, yeah, I agree with you guys. I think this is a was a surprising good good. It has a few has a few flaws, but I think I'm willing to forgive them just for how smart this movie is and like how it does a ton with very little. And unlike Death on the Nile, like isn't afraid to shoot on the water. Like just get a boat and put a couple of people on it and shoot that. And there's something kind of nice about being able to re- like return to a movie such as this where you can just it, it's just a premise it's a premise movie that really kind of delivers on some bigger themes have we maybe we should do some googling is kenneth Branagh just scared of water is that why we did that, that i way? was just gonna say Trains. kenneth Branagh had real bad luck on boats in tenet he had he had a couple of very bad boat experiences You're right. if you remember he, he falls off a boat twice in that movie um, different boats. Dunkirk, he's uh, very committed to staying on the dock. For the French. Almost home from here. Yeah. Um, the mole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's all about boats. Y- shall we talk about uh, Murder Mystery? Murder Mystery 2019. A New York cop and his wife go on a European vacation to reinvigorate the spark in their marriage, but end up getting framed and on the run for the death of an elderly billionaire. I don't know if that synopsis past the grammatical smell test, but I feel like you got it. Use your field, as always. What brings you across the pond? It's my honeymoon. Where's your husband? Dead. Asleep. He's dead asleep. (laughs) Sir, if you don't return to your seat, I'm gonna have to call the cops. Hey! Hi, honey! We've actually been married for 15 years, but we just have been very, 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 very busy. Flushing. Yeah. Doing it extra hard tonight. Charles is inviting us to spend the weekend with him on a yacht. Crushing the party with civilians. You're an actress, right? Grace Ballard. Oh, I am Nick Spitz. This is my wife, Allison. I can't Audrey, believe it. Uh, Audrey. I'm Audrey. I said Audrey. Did you ever fool around on a boat? I just lay here and the boat does all the work. There's been a murder. Should we pull it up? No, it's a foot long now. Will you listen to my husband? He's a detective. I'll put it back. Don't put it back. <laughs> So this is a uh, Sandman Square in the middle of uh, this Netflix run, where he just does a does a Netflix comedy seemingly every year. It's very in keeping with his thing of just going to like wanting to take a vacation in Monte Carlo, for instance, and being like, "Yeah, we can make a movie while I'm there," kind of thing. Um, is it Monte Carlo or Monaco? It's Monaco. Did I screw this up? It's Monaco. I'm sorry. Well, I'm sure in 2024 he'll make a movie in Monte Carlo that's about like going to the beach with rob schneider or something um yeah so uh sandler plays a new york cop jennifer aniston uh is married to this new york cop she's a hairdresser um they're kind of in this uh stagnant marriage 15 years into a marriage and uh nick played by sandler hasn't made good on his uh, european honeymoon promise from years before tomorrow is their anniversary and he's uh getting her an Amazon gift card and uh, unbeknownst to him in all his broy obliviousness, uh, Audrey is at a breaking point. Um, and he basically lies his way in a moment of her severe disappointment, 
lies his way into being like, I was going to take you to Europe really soon. Cut to they're on the plane uh, enjoying the enjoying all the fun of steerage with the creaky seats and the lack of room and and uh, Jen Aniston wanders to first class and meets uh, Gaston, Luke Evans, um, who is uh, rich but not the richest uh, suspicious man in this movie. Um, they begin sort of a fl- sort of a flirtation. He says, uh, "I'm in this weird thing with my." with my billionaire family and there's like an inheritance thing. We're all going to be trapped on a boat and it's going to be bad. I would love to bring you and your husband so I can get drunk and kind of spoil their fun. She sees the opportunity to have a much better vacation uh, and off they go onto murder boat. Although I'm a little disappointed by how much of the movie then takes place after murder boat was not the best pick on my part. I'm sorry for that. Classic chance. Right. Doesn't know that only 30 minutes of the movie are on Murder Boat. That's correct. And do we think any of that was actually, do do we think any of the boat scenes were actually filmed on a boat? Or do you think Death on the Nile style? Probably like Atlanta. Yeah. (laughs) It's a parking lot in Atlanta. (laughs) Somehow, though, this movie looks better than Death on the Nile. It does. I was thinking that, too. Watching it last night, I was like, holy shit, even the, I mean, clearly... There, there is some underlying like second unit photography that's happened, but there's a ton of CGI, and it still looks better because it, it there's that base level of like we actually went to this place and shot some exteriors. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, obviously the the cruise ship that they're on, the yacht that they're on, is like sort of a, a gift for from the from the CGI gods. Um, but let me like, well, I have a bigger question just about Sandler. Cause I feel like he kind of has fallen into these two tracks of these performances post funny people where he either just kind of like mumbles and like, doesn't really go for it or he'll go so over the top and does his like Adam Sandler SNL water boy thing. And this one is decidedly the more, you know, quiet and mumbling, even when things are like blowing up around him. He's almost like the straight guy to Jennifer Aniston's funny guy. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that um, dichotomy in the way you laid it out, just because I'm behind on films such as uh, The Ridiculous Six and Sandy Wexler and Hubie Halloween. Um, I don't know what his vibe is in those. I assume it is more of the like screaming comedic. Hubie Halloween is definitely like in that, uh, Billy Madison, Waterboy space. Okay, but I, I think it's actually I think that movie is actually way better than people give it credit for. Uh, it's like a fun small town genre horror movie. I think he wears this um, understated laziness really well. It makes him more charming. Um, I kind of appreciated this character just in the like unexpectedly. Um, like soft ways that he reacts to thing. And it makes the comedy like a little bit sneakier. Like when she's saying like, we never go anywhere. And he's just like, no, that's not true. Remember when we went to Virginia and my uncle was on hospice and we got to watch him die. (laughs) (laughs) Like he really undersells that line in a way that is more like his like Meyerowitz stories character, just in terms of cadence and delivery. Right. Um, 
so he kind of yeah he wears and yeah he's just apathy in certain situations i think the best laugh of the movie is when he comes nick comes into first class sees luke evans like squeezing audrey's shoulder they're clearly like flirting with physical contact and he just goes whoa they have bars on airplanes (laughs) i love that shit bob what do you think um i I, another actually a legitimate laugh from that scene is when cavendish uh luke heaven's character says oh let me buy your beer and he says what no i'm not just gonna take a beer from a guy and then immediately (laughs) drinks it i think overall i think i'm a little less forgiving i think there's something that reads very sad about adam sandler playing this type of character this kind of like disappointment uh, at this point in his career, and there's like, I mean, one of my favorite comedies of all time is is Happy Gilmore, and he's like the lovable loser there, right? He's like a he's kind of a psychopath. Right. He's very angry. He's not smart. The real Billy Zane he's, from Dead Calm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's he's a lovable, sexy psychopath. Uh, but having that character, like playing kind of the same beats like 30 years on um, even when there are, yeah, little, there are actually some good, some good lines in there of comedy. It, it, it did read a little sad and disappointing. And I, and I just, <laughs> it's, it's a little, it also feels a little lazy. I feel like he, I haven't seen a lot of his recent movies, but I feel like he does go back to this. Well, a lot of the just kind of underachiever who uh, keeps kind of getting by. Um, but uh, all, all that to say, I found the movie winning me over a little bit with its kind of uh, self-awareness and, and the kind of wink and a nod that it gives. The the fact that Audrey is a uh, f- reader of mystery novels and is super keyed into the tropes, and he's a detective, so he's super keyed into actual crime. Well, not actually, and The fact not. that they can... Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, he's failed his detective exam actually three <laughs> times. That's... <laughs> um, as we find out, um, but he's he's an aspiring detective. Um, the fact that it can that it can play with those tropes and and joke about them while also still delivering an actual like murder mystery, I think, is a strength of a more modern style of filmmaking. Whereas the uh, Death on the Nile is like extremely sincere. And like doesn't have any extra like layer of self awareness to it beyond just telling the story. Um, so I, I appreciated that about murder mystery. I love that point. Yeah, because I feel like, especially on the Netflix of it all, there's so many of these like romantic comedies, or even that like in theaters movie like Isn't It Romantic with Rebel Wilson like tried to kind of be self aware of the tropes of a kind of genre picture and just like it ends up just like not working or not going far enough. Whereas I felt like this movie, you know, because it's Sandler at the kind of the production helm of it, like has the wherewithal to, to go there, um, you know, and ultimately having all the tropes of the genre while subverting some expectations thereof, uh, which I think made this movie more charming than I expected it to be. To your point, Script is by James Vanderbilt, who wrote the new Scream movie, which speaks to exactly what you guys are talking about, I believe. He's got an interesting screenwriting career. It goes back to uh, The Rundown, and he adapted Robert Graysmith's book for Zodiac, 
Um, which made me be like, is this the guy who's responsible for the dialogue in like one of my 10 favorite movies? <laughs> I, I really had not been giving whoever he is any credit ever. Um, but then he also did, uh, the, uh, amazing Spider-Man movies, um, which are, you know, chocolate great. house, oh, chocolate house. Cho- yeah. Um, uh, he's the guy, he's the mind behind chocolate house. Um, question Bobby mark. wrote one of your favorite sequels of all time, uh, Independence Day Resurgence. Oh boy! Oh wow! So someone <laughs> did write that film. <laughs> I'm just disappointed well, that, that he had nothing a... to do with Moonfall, which I found brilliant. It's interesting. Then you see him like working through all those sequel rehashes that are widely considered pretty bad, but you are getting more and more into like a requisite meta Hollywood screenwriter thing by the time he makes it around to this and Scream. So, um, and he is also writing Murder Mystery too which is due out uh, this year. I will say that I like the first act of this movie the most, where it gets to play the kind of goofy vacationer humor. Like Sandler's wardrobe is just so funny to me. Um, He's just like always (laughs) wearing a shirt that's two sizes too big (laughs) in every scene, Um, which I enjoy. Um, And yeah, you get a lot of the Terrence Stamp like giving his whole like grand speech addressing everyone at the party and then like who are these two and just the way they introduce himself like we're the spitzes like there's not really a joke there but the act the comedic acting is pretty good um when they when you get to the middle and they're kind of investigating and bopping around to different people like even though it's a comedy i had the same problems as i have with other um kind of overstuffed murder mystery movies which is like i don't I don't care about this person. I don't care that they're about to die. I don't care about the little nugget of information that they're going to give you. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter to me. The one thing I will say is by the time we got to the end, and Bob, if it's okay to say, you don't know what happens at Please. the end of this movie. Um, Let her rip. Okay. It, I'm excited to find out. People, uh, we've spoiled every other movie on this show without compunction, but if for some reason you don't want to know about murder mystery, <laughs> we're going to spoil it right now. When it was revealed that Juan Carlos had done it, I had the reaction that I never had for the rest of this movie and never had in Death on the Nile, which is like, oh, not the fun guy, not Juan Carlos, who was uh, like, hey, Halloween. Uh-huh. Like, the whole joke is that, like, he was a Spaniard or an Italian who didn't speak English and just said, like, very fast, number one, whatever. Um, so, in a weird way, like, just with very simple bits they built in like a character recognition and affection in comedy that complete like other movies completely failed to do with drama so that was it funny i was gonna say that like unlike death on the nile i felt like everybody kind of had like a bit like a bit enough yeah a bit enough that you recognize each character scene to scene and like what their like what their thing is like even giving and it's sophomoric for sure but like even giving the colonel like this joke of like how many parts has he had blown off by this bomb that he like got in front of you know and it just like gets progressively uh, more severe you know or like the the maharaja like you know playing with these tropes of just like how westerners deal with people from the east and like what he's able to get away with and as you said like you know the this this uh, supposedly um non-english speaking um, uh, Formula One driver who just has like enough casual English phrases to like get through polite discourse. Uh, I just thought that was so funny and like rounded enough in these characters to to make it like okay, I I get who these people are. Do you guys remember like at, at Blockbuster, um, 
there would be these like knockoff movies uh like transmorphers or like automobiles that would come out uh, and there's a specific production company that whose name escapes me but specialized in making these movies that would come out like before a major motion picture hits video and so right at the same time by mistake yeah yeah like they would time it so that they would come on when I worked at the video store in high school, there was the Zodiac Killer that came out. <laughs> yeah. Does it, does it feel a little bit like this film, Murder Mystery, was doing that for Knives Out? Yes. Like, this is a uh, pastiche, uh, basically, of Knives Out. It, it didn't occur to me until Terrence Stamp stepped on screen. And I said, oh, he's the Christopher Plummer role. Like, it's literally just that setup almost exactly. Before we get to that question, Chance, do you have a, a Benoit Blanc up your sleeve? <laughs> no. Chance, you have this. Chance has this incredible ability. Come on, he's got great impressions of some people, but he like you, you throw a foreign accent in there, and he he's 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 flying blind. I like you. Well, that's just a southern accent. You tried to do Australian, and you ended up in Scotland on this this podcast just now. Australian's hard, though, because all the vowel you have to th- mentally transpose every vowel. There's one part in the movie where Nicole Kidman's like, is there anybody on deck? Meaning anyone on deck. But, like, I don't have time for... I don't have time for vowel transpositions. Ben, Benoit <laughs> Blanc is just Foghorn Leghorn, so if you want me to do some bad Kentucky Fried something, I can do it. I do. <laughs> I, do. I do. No, I'm... Um, knives Out. Uh, I really like that movie. Noah, I believe, does not. Um, I know what you're it's saying, fine. Bob. Um, I think it's really, really hard to take a... A genre like this that is, is is mostly structural. It's like basically just geometry um, of who yeah. could have done intricately crafted of who yeah a puzzle box of who could have done what. Um, give everybody something to do that is recognizable, and then the step beyond that would be give everybody something to do that you recognize and care about. I think it's with like with comedy and with payoff. I think it's really really hard to do. I think murder mystery. It's easier just to be like, ah, I don't care what they do. Like, I, I like this doesn't make much difference to me. Um, Knives Out, I think, is because of, it has such more ambition. It's easier to see where it falls short in that ambition. But I think at the end of the day, I really do care about that Marta character. And the final shot with the coffee cup of Knives Out, like, works for me on a, on a emotional level that is not happening in these other versions of that mystery. I don't know. No, what do you think? I mean, to return to murder mystery itself a little, you know, I think, I mean, similarly to Dead Calm, like, I think having a story framed around an ultimately, like, sympathetic central couple, like, does a lot of favors for the story, because ultimately, like, it is like a date night or, you know, a game night or whatever it is where it's just like, here are these bored suburban people who just like can't get the life that they're looking for suddenly thrust into spectacular uh, circumstances that force them to become those people if only for a moment. And that becomes kind of a sympathetic conceit for for a movie um, more than let's just cast everybody under the sun and put them into a classic piece of intellectual 
intellectual property and hope we care about them, even though we don't give them the detailing <laughs> that the books gave them. Um, so I don't know. I think that, you know, when it comes to a movie like this or Knives Out, like it, for me, it always comes back to characters and like, do am I rooting for these people to succeed? And there's something, you know, yes, it's kind of sad and depressing and there is a little bit of phoning in that's happening, but I feel like the movie gets away with that, that phoning in because like these people are phoning in their lives. Like maybe Aniston's phoning in this performance, maybe Sandler's phoning in this performance, but like these people are running on autopilot in their lives and that's kind of the point. Uh, so I felt that to be, you know, at the end when they're like, huh, you know, they have that, well, we're not going to go to that mediocre restaurant again, kind of, you know, last shot the way the dead calm also has that last shot. You know, it is kind of funny and irreverent. I would say bad, good. Um, a lot of vitriol for this movie. Like I, that could just be like a thing with critics and and Sandler, especially late Sandler, people were just like, this is the end of the fucking world. He has so much potential when he goes dramatic. Now he's just phoning in these Netflix movies. Like this is the, the death of culture. And I'm, I would watch this movie and I'm like, well, this is phoned in for sure. But like, it's not unenjoyable. And like, it's not a, there really, there's only one. Who doesn't like a phone? Of course. Love my phone. (laughs) Spend all, spend all my time on it. Um, there's only one annoying character in the movie, which feels like, Sandler movies are full of annoying characters. The Maharaja is pretty uh, grating, but other than that, like Absolutely. it's not a grating movie. It's not high pitched. It's it's not offensive. It's not irritating. Um, it's just slacking. So bad, good. Totally, I totally agree with you. I think of the kind of bad Netflix movies out there and the people that are making too much money to produce them. This is the this is the kind of thing where it's like yes this is obvious this is just like a a murder mystery the the title implies it all and you know what you get is something that's a little bit smarter than it should be you know is aware of the genre tropes and I don't know like I'd rather something like this than you know the woman in the fucking window which is so self serious and becomes unwatchable because of that then just see some, you know, people that I recognize, but not too stacked a cast as to like not know which way to point the camera, but still like have talent there to have a decent enough script and to actually fucking get, you know, on location and get that second unit to at least do some establishing shots that you can then add a CGI boat to. It's just, it's not that hard. It's not that complicated to make a movie that looks like an authentic movie and that someone did it, even on Netflix, uh, you know, I think is something we should celebrate. A bad good. Gentlemen, we have done it. Um, submarine murders? Jeep murders? Uh, what, do you, what do you guys want to, you, you want to reconvene this Blimps. at any point? Blimp murders. Blimps and dirigibles. No ticket. Dirigibles. <laughs> no ticket. Uh, any any parting thoughts? It's just been such a honor and a privilege to join you both here. Uh, I'm so glad I got a chance to do this. Thank you for letting me come on and blather about these movies. Uh, you know, I again uh, as as part of my contractual obligation, <laughs> I have to let you know. You should I was going to do that for you. <laughs> Death on the Nile in theaters only, uh, and you should see it. Um, but yeah, and 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 check out. Um, a Murder on the Orient Express uh, coming to a bookstore or Amazon near you in uh, 2023, hopefully. All right. Um, we'll direct people toward it, and, and good luck with it, man. Um, 
it was great to catch up with you and thanks for coming on it's great to see you both thank you Noah thank you as always buddy sir always a pleasure